0: From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: So one of the things I think is really interesting, we haven't narrowed in on this, but on the statement of the crime for George Papadopoulos, there are hints of what was said and done that it makes clear that there's a lot more to the story than we have.
0: That's my guest on the show today, Ann Milgram. Ann is the former attorney general of the state of New Jersey and teaches at NYU Law School. I've known Ann for a long time. She's served in a lot of different roles. She's been a local prosecutor, an attorney general of the state, federal prosecutor. She knows Bob Mueller well. She's also worked in the Senate. And when things like this break, like the news about the Mueller indictments, she's a person whose brain I really like to pick. Ann and I broke down all the news coming out of the special counsel Bob Mueller's office this week. Before I get to that, I want to just say a brief word about the horrible tragic terrorist attack that occurred in Lower Manhattan this week. You know, As you know, I was a U.S. attorney in New York for a number of years, and our most sacred responsibility was protecting the homeland and defending against terrorism. There were two serious operational terrorists that I had to deal with, along with the Joint Terrorism Task Force and others, where prosecutors in my office worked around the clock. One was a Times Square bomber, Faisal Shahzad, back in May of 2010, and the other More recently, Ahmed Rahimi, who was convicted to trial recently for being what the press called a Chelsea bomber. He blew up a bomb made in a pressure cooker in a dumpster in the Chelsea part of Manhattan. And so this week, the first thing I want to say is how sad everyone in New York is, but how resilient everyone in New York is when someone commits a terrible, horrible, violent act like this. You become both sad, you become angry at the person who did it, and you also... Think, well, how do you recover from it? What's amazing about New York, where I've lived for almost all of my professional life, is that this is the most resilient, strong city I know. I lived in New York, in Manhattan when 9 11 happened. So when people say New York City is strong, they know what they're talking about. The second thing I want to say is unlike a lot of cases where a person commits a terrorist act by way of suicide, uh, the suspect here is not dead we shot by police who jumped into action and first responders who we also want to congratulate and commend. But this person, I suspect, will be prosecuted federally because my old office, I suspect, is working hand in hand with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the FBI agents, and the NYPD officers to bring federal charges against him. And even though there's a lot of talk in political circles about how this person must be declared an enemy combatant and how our system can't handle it, I just want to say that in, in my experience, we can. And we prosecuted and held to account and got life imprisonment for terrorist after terrorist after terrorist, and it can be done in the right way with the system we have. So I want to say thank you to all the police officers and law enforcement, folks who responded to the violent acts of this week, prayers and condolences for all the victims and their families. And if you ever wanted a sign to understand how resilient and strong and tough New York is, the attack happened on Halloween. And there was a long-scheduled Halloween parade that, in fact, even in the wake of this death and violence in lower Manhattan, just around the corner, that Halloween parade went off without a hitch. That tells you something about New York and about New Yorkers. Now I want to answer a few of your questions. Hey, Preet. It's Josh from Indiana. I love the show. I just uh, wondered what your thoughts are on the resignation of Dana Finney. It's kind of gone under the radar, and whether or not he actually resigned on his own a quarter, maybe he was asked to resign like you were. So Dana Bente is someone I've known a long time. He's the United States attorney, like I was, but for the Eastern District of Virginia. At the time I was fired back in March, Dana Bente was the acting deputy attorney general. And he's actually the one who called me and told me that I had to submit my letter of resignation. And then the person who called me and told me that he was directed by Donald Trump himself. So effectively, Dana Bente is the one who told me I was fired. I bear him no ill will for that. I have other opinions about how He might have handled the closing days of 46 United States Attorney's tenure in the job. But in answer to your question about whether his resignation means something, I'm not sure. Uh, It's impossible to know. It's impossible to tell. But I do understand that Denebent has agreed to stay on until a replacement has been nominated and confirmed, which less suggests that something crazy has happened just in the last, you know, 48 or 72 hours. But I don't know, and I can't speculate. You know, maybe Dinah Bente is a avid listener of the show. If you ever do want to come on the podcast, uh, as you might imagine, I have some questions. I'd like to get off my chest. So we're here. Uh, this next question comes from Chris in Indianapolis. Apparently, we're, we're it's Indiana Day. Hi, Preet. My question relates to classified information. I've always wondered how the back and forth that you have with a guest, uh, Leon Panetta made me think of this, How do you turn on and off your brain to make sure that you're not revealing anything classified, yet you're in the know on everything, yet there are some things that are public, some things you can't say? Just wondering how you parse that uh, in your public interviews and on your podcast. Love the show. Thanks so much. So, Chris, that's a great question. It's incumbent upon a person who has sensitive information and certainly classified information not to reveal it anywhere and certainly not in public, and... It's something you got to be careful about because if you're an ordinary human being, you know, you don't have compartments in your brain in the same way that a filing cabinet does. So you got to make sure that what you're saying publicly in response to a question somewhere comes from the file that is open and allowed to be discussed, not otherwise. And we had very, very strict rules in the, in the Justice Department. There was some information that was secret. That's a technical term. There was some information that was top secret, some information that was even more sensitive than that. And we actually had in my old office and, and other law enforcement agencies have it, something called a SCIF, S-C-I-F, which stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility, which is basically a, a room where you can talk about the most secretive, sensitive, classified stuff. And in fact, we had special computers in that room that were offline uh, in a particular way and you know couldn't be hacked to our knowledge. And certain kinds of conversations about cases could only take place in the SCIF not even in my office, which was otherwise pretty secure. Yeah, so you're right. When, you know, I'm talking to Leon Panetta and we were talking about the Russian spy case that had a lot of sensitive information in it, or Lisa Monaco, who obviously every day got, you know, a diet of classified information. You know, we're careful. And we we try to say as little as possible about facts that might be classified. And that way you stay out of trouble. So there are multiple bombshells earlier this week. The news that Bob Mueller's team was charging multiple people associated with Donald Trump's team. I quickly addressed some of the issues in a special episode of the podcast earlier in the week, but today I'm going to go into it in a little bit more depth with my incredibly smart uh, and experienced guest, Ann Milgram. Stay tuned. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated, you never use it. That's exactly the type of security system SimpliSafe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe that simple is safer. And that's exactly why SimpliSafe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your home 24-7. Order online with the click of a button. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. And you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Their 24-7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal, considering that SimpliSafe was named Best Overall Home Security of 2020 by U.S. News & World Report. Head to simplysafecom preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplisafe.com preet to make sure they know that our show sent you. And now let me welcome my guest, Ann Milgram, former attorney general of the state of New Jersey and friend of mine and also uh, at NYU Law School like me. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So there are three charges. There's one indictment against Paul Manafort, former campaign manager for the Donald Trump campaign. His protege, as people like to call it, Rick Gates. And then there's a separate charge against a, a younger man named George Papadopoulos. And he was, by all accounts, a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign for a period of time as well. And he's charged with a violation of what you and I know very well. as thousand and uh, one. thousand and one. 18 United States Code, 2001, which is, uh, you know, a, a statute that federal officials like to use and hold over people's heads because it basically criminalizes lying to the feds. And so what did you think when you first heard that the charges were being brought?
1: So I, I was expecting it to be Manafort, potentially. I mean, he was sort of on the list of people I would thinking would be charged. I hadn't followed the Papadopoulos piece as as closely. And so, you know, I had to gut check myself for a moment because this has been going on now for over a year. And so in some ways, we were probably both expecting to see charges. Um, There'd been some leaks that there were charges coming, that people were um, being walked into the courthouse Monday morning. And so I I think it's important to remember how extraordinary it is that we're seeing charges brought against people who were campaign officials who are essentially charged with Defrauding the United States, who are charged with, you know, tax evasion, money laundering, and then to see, particularly the George Papadopoulos piece, which I think is in many ways the most interesting piece of this, which sort of gives us little pieces, but there's a lot that's missing.
0: I, I think, I think without question, the Papa So far, at least, the Papadopoulos, and you know, like I just like saying over and over again, Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. Should we just keep saying Papadopoulos? We can. We can. Papa? That's the the most significant for reasons we'll talk about. But, you know, you said a second ago that you were expecting to be Paul Manafort. And the reason we were all – and I said I was expecting uh, to hear who the defendant might be on Monday morning, you know, one or more. And the reason for that is that a uh, network, CNN, reported on Friday evening that there had been an indictment returned by the grand jury that was sitting for Bob Mueller's special counsel's office. That's not good. Uh, You and I both know that it's not good. It's not supposed to come out. And immediately, a lot of people started blaming the Mueller team. And we have no way of knowing how that happened, but it shouldn't have come out. What do you think happened there?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, there's all sorts of possible areas it could have come from members of the grand jury, people in the courthouse um, who saw members of Mueller's team well, walking Well, for any of those out. people,
0: if it was members of the grand jury or it was a member of the prosecution team, that's uh, – that's unlawful.
1: Or even court security officers or even a member of the public who sees someone they recognize. You know, everyone in courthouses talk. There is a lot of information that goes around, some of it accurate, some of it not. But I'm sure that the reporters and the press are out there watching eagerly to see if members of the team are coming in. Now, how they knew that the actual indictment had been returned, I think, is, is a real question because that is what was reported on Friday. It wasn't just that there are witnesses going for the grand jury. It was that charges had been filed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure it was necessarily true when it came out because people, right, other point. people didn't confirm it for a while, but it turned out that it was true. So I want to come back to that in a few minutes, but first I want to talk about the Mueller team, Bob mm-hmm. Mueller himself. Yeah. And because I know you've you've dealt with him, what's your experience been with Bob Mueller personally?
1: Um, so I, I love Bob Mueller um, and I think Probably you would say the same thing I would say, which is he's one of the few prosecutors in America and, and former federal agent as the head of the FBI who really is beyond reproach. He's just he's a straight shooter. When I was A. G. I I dealt with him on a couple of matters. Um, you know, he was at the time the head of the FBI and I was running the Camden, New Jersey Police Department. And so we needed a lot of help from the FBI. We had a lot of conversations with um, federal agencies about getting in, um, getting in to help us with crime fighting. And so, you know, I, I haven't dealt with him a huge amount, but I've, I've dealt with him on a number of issues, and I found him to be completely above board, completely straight, probably the least political prosecutor. Um, and I don't think pros- of prosecutors as being political, but Mueller is just, you know, he's straight as an arrow. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I would, I would even sort of ask you, Preet, is all the speculation about Mueller... Is sending a message, right? That he's out there sending a message to other people through the Manafort and through the Papadopoulos stuff. And my experience with Mueller is that he is just unbelievably methodical. He's going to go through the facts and the law. And
0: he's just doing he's just doing his job. I said this on this podcast before, and some people might remember it when we had Lisa Monaco, who you also know, you know, a guy who has subpoena power, a huge budget, sixteen lawyers, uh, men with weapons who he can deploy doesn't need to flex Completely. or send messages. The work itself is its message. But I just want to back up on Mueller for a second and and say a couple of things. One is no person is perfect. Yep, God knows of I'm not. Yep. Um, of us are. And and no person should be put on a pedestal, whether law enforcement or otherwise. And so I don't mean that people in the country, there's a lot of people going out there lionizing Bob Mueller in part because they want him to you know engage in certain sure. activities and reach a certain result. And they want to pump him up. When, when I talk about him, when you talk about him, when Lisa Monaco talks about him, I think we talk about him from a position of experience in the past. And the one thing that is, has bothered me, that there's a, a, a movement to undermine him and say he's political in some way. But just as a reminder to the, to the audience, who may not remember this, you know, Bob Mueller began as the FBI director just a few days before 9-11 yep. in 2001. And by statute, by law, an FBI director can serve only for 10 years So his 10 years came up in 2011, and uh, people may not remember what happened. What happened was the Congress and the president, who was then President Obama, basically said, it's a country of 325 million people, and we can't find someone better than Bob Mueller. And so what are we going to do? Rather than nominate some new person, and there were a lot of people who I'm sure were raising their hand, and you and I know some of them, they decided to do an extraordinary thing. They decided to change the law. Yeah.
1: And, and keep him. Yeah. And
0: keep him. Yeah. So literally they passed a bill called a bill to extend the term of the incumbent director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which was a Senate bill, uh, in, you know, S-1103. And that law passed 100 to 0 in the Senate. and that Completely wasn't
1: bipartisan. Completely yeah.
0: bipartisan. So I think
1: it's a great point. And I think you and I have both been through it where people don't know where it lands and they suspect that it's not going to land well and we should talk about that in a minute, but they suspect that there are going to be additional charges, which I believe there will be. And so they're setting it up to say the investigation is a sham, it's politically motivated, it's being run, I think, by people who are not honorable and they're not going to you know, follow the law where it takes them. And so I think it's, they're planting the seed to frame that conversation amongst people who are inclined to believe the worst, who don't know Mueller, like people in law enforcement do.
0: So Manafort and Gates uh, were allowed to surrender they were not treated to what a lot of defendants are, uh, with the FBI showing up at six a.m., uh, you know, knocking on the door and and telling people to you know put their hands up. Some people have said that's unfair that they're getting special treatment. Can you explain why it really it either was or was not appropriate?
1: Well, you've probably you've probably done this too. I- our practice was often when someone was represented by counsel and we knew that they were represented by counsel, we would go through the lawyers and allow people to surrender. But
0: only in certain circumstances. Only in
1: certain circumstances, right. not in all. But our practice was often that, um, unless we had a reason to believe we, we shouldn't do that.
0: But you don't let people surrender if you think that they're going to be a risk of flight mm-hmm. or you think they're going to be a danger to the community. So violent criminals who are not aware they're under investigation almost are never permitted to surrender. Right. So in my mind, it's not it's not a function of whether or not you have money or means or lawyers but the nature of the crime and the nature of the risk and the threat. I was a little bit surprised, I'll say. Why house detention? Does that seem odd to you and unusual in these circumstances? Well,
1: it sounded like, I mean, this is, so this is the piece I think is really interesting here is, that's the exact analysis I would do is, is there a risk to public safety? If you release someone, and is there a risk that somebody won't return or will flee? And here I agree. It's a white-collar crime. There's no evidence that any of these folks are risks to public safety. But in terms of the risk of flight, the government made serious arguments that they thought Manafort was a risk of flight, and that's why they asked for home detention. And so it is a little inconsistent with, letting, little odd, somebody, right? Right, with letting somebody walk in voluntarily, because if you think they're a risk of flight, you usually would go out and pick them up at 6 o'clock in the morning.
0: And what kinds of questions do you think Bob Mueller is personally signing off? Obviously, the charges— you know, you were the attorney general of an office of how many lawyers?
1: Uh, we had 9,000 people, but we had, you know,
0: hundreds of lawyers. I was used to a smaller office. We had 220 lawyers, 450 employees. And obviously lots and lots of things go on there, and you can't personally micromanage all of it. But there are certain kinds of things that are likely to be signed off by Bob Mueller himself. Bob Mueller, who was the person who was appointed. Now, these other yes, people were appointed by, by, you know, Rod Rosenstein. Do you think that Bob Mueller, again, we're speculating again, yes. but, you know, somewhat intelligently, I hope, do you think Bob Mueller has personally signed off on the no-knock search of Paul Manafort's home?
1: I think so. I think I would have. Would you have? I would have. I yeah, think so, yeah. too. I mean, yeah. I would have, I would have wanted
0: to know. So do you think Bob Mueller approved the request for home detention?
1: My sense is in a case like this, he will approve every high-level request, court filing, decision, everything that is going to have an impact on the outcome of the case. And that's that's a critical question of do you ask for detention or not?
0: So there there are, there are investigative uh, interviews that are happening. Witnesses have been interviewed. We know yeah. that George Papadopoulos was interviewed and then cooperated and pled guilty. I used to get this question a lot because we were confused about what my job was. Is Bob Mueller personally conducting any of those interviews? No. No, I don't he's think so. Not? No. <laughs> but he's not? I guy, know. I but know. he's the guy. I mean, I, I once came out of a train... When we were when we had a significant case against a huge head of a hedge fund named Roger Roger Rutnam and a guy came out of the train and the guy looked at me. Why you said, weren't in trial? He said, "Aren't you in court? Why aren't you in court?" <laughs> yeah. And I said, "I don't know what you're, this man is talking about." He said, "You have that trial against the yeah against the big hedge fund guy." I said, "No, I you know, I have I have people yeah. actually <laughs> do who do that. it." So, so Bob Mueller is overseeing. You think overseeing things, but he's delegating all of this authority to his team.
1: Well, if it was you, I would think right. The FBI, when they do an interview, they'll do a write up of those interviews, a three hundred two, right? They'll they'll do sort of a written record of a, a three hundred two is, is is
0: is the form number on which FBI agents make a record of interviews that they do.
1: And so, I would assume that as they're doing these interviews, they're writing them up. Mueller is seeing all of them, and he's able to help direct the lawyers and say, let's go interview this person next. These five people are on our list. And I sort of imagine there's a whiteboard in the office, and they've got these lines of inquiry. And so the Manafort-Gates line is one of them with Papadopoulos there. And then there's others, right? There's the Trump Jr. meeting with Kushner and Manafort. So there are different sort of, this is a pretty large, I would think, investigation into the links between the campaign and the Russian government's efforts to impact the election. And so My guess is Mueller is sort of in the nerve center of that, trying to figure out what are the pieces, where is the evidence, who have we talked to, who haven't we talked to, and is trying to really bring that thoughtfully together. Um, I'm not a fan of the
0: whiteboard. It's like a Silicon Valley thing to me, like the whiteboard. Um, But yeah, you have different people who are looking at different things. And I assume that the team of 15 or 16 lawyers is divided up by task. Uh, So, you know, for example, there are three signatures on the plea agreement between the special counsel's office and the lawyers for George Papadopoulos who's accused right. of lying to the government I personally know two of those people Jeannie Ree and Andrew Goldstein uh, Jeannie Ree and I became uh, prosecutors together she in Washington and I in and Southern District and we were trained together actually at, the, oh, main, at right. the at the Justice Department training center you know the knack a hundred you know people who know it a hundred years ago and Andrew Goldstein I hired into the Southern district and promoted to be the, the chief of the public corruption unit. So I know them to be tremendous. And Andrew, I know even better because I supervised him and he oversaw a lots of important corruption investigations. So I know that at least those two and another person who I don't know, uh, Aaron Zelensky, they're doing their own thing, but they're presumably coordinating with each other as well.
1: And probably all through Mueller, who's directing and thinking about what their next steps are.
0: I want to talk about the Papadopoulos charge because that's significant for a lot of reasons. One what clearly happened, and I think this is laid out in the documents, uh, FBI agents went to interview George Papadopoulos. They said, we want to interview you about certain things. They told him that to lie to us is a crime. So it's not like it's some law in the books and some obscure. And they said, if you lie to us, that's a crime. And we're going to ask you these questions about your contacts with various people who were interfaces, that you thought were interfaces with members of the Russian government in connection with a campaign. And then he proceeded to lie to them. That's right. And whether or not his interactions with a professor who's described in the, in the paperwork, who was a conduit to the Russian government, whether or not that was criminal in mm-hmm. nature, while they're trying to figure out if it's criminal in nature, the lying about it after being warned about it is a crime and you think is, a, is an important crime to prosecute. I do. Do you think that if they had more on him they wouldn't have made him plead guilty to that because we would have.
1: Right, I would have as well. I would have as well. But that but I think it's important to know that when there are two things. One is that and I'm sort of speaking more generally that there are times when you're you're doing a plea agreement on someone that you wouldn't make them plead to all charges that were potentially against them. I'm, I don't think that was the case here, yeah, I but I do think it's just important that we understand that
0: Sometimes you work quickly to bring a charge because you're trying to flip them. And yes. that it's not been confirmed hundred percent, but I'm pretty pretty sure me too. That that's what yeah. happened here for a lot of reasons. So to flip someone is in our you know old-fashioned law enforcement parlance, to try to get to convince someone, to take responsibility for their conduct, and to cooperate with the government and provide substantial assistance in some way, and, and potentially
1: that, testify against other people. In testify case. against some folks
0: yeah. In this case, there's been a lot of speculation about what happened. So I want to run through with you what you think happened because I see some smart commentary and I see some stuff. That doesn't make a lot of sense, even coming from academics who I don't think have ever been in a courtroom but like to talk about it. No offense to them. So George Papadopoulos, it looks like, was arrested on July 27th, Mm -hmm. something like that. And he didn't plead guilty until October 5th, early October. So that's a lot of weeks that have gone by. And I've seen some commentators say that the special counsel's office has suggested that he engaged in proactive cooperation. By proactive cooperation, I presume they mean that he helped them mm-hmm. while being a secret you yep. know tool of the government does that necessarily mean that he wore a wire
1: no i don't think that necessarily means he wore a wire so what is
0: it what does it, it mean it,
1: there are a lot of reasons i think you and i could think about between the time he was placed under arrest and the time he pled guilty figuring out you know would he cooperate getting access to emails it is potentially viable that he would have worn a wire but by no means i think necessarily the case here but And also, they're going to debrief him before they figure out whether they'll sign him up as a cooperator. And when
0: you you say debrief him, you mean what?
1: What I think we would think about for law enforcement agents is that they would sit in a room and they would want to know everything he knows from the first days of his interaction with the campaign till his interactions with all the people that are part of the investigation. And they would want to also figure out if he's going to be a cooperator, if you're going to sign somebody up, you have one critical question, which is, particularly when somebody's already lied to you, which is, are they going to tell you the truth? And so Bob Mueller and his team are not going to cooperate, in my view, somebody who they think is still lying to them. And so, you know, the agents would have spent a considerable amount of time figuring out what does he know, who does he know it about, what evidence is out there that they can get, and is he being forthright with us now that he's come forward and, and changed his story? Is the change story the accurate one?
0: So here's a question probably a lot of people are asking themselves as they're listening to us talk if you're trying to get someone to cooperate against someone else and testify and you're trying to make sure that in order to do that they will you have to you have to believe that they're telling the truth this guy's just been convicted of lying right so how smart is it for a prosecutor's office to rely on the future testimony of a guy whose only crime so far has been to lie to them.
1: Right. I mean, this, this is a great question, and I think um, it is something that if you're not part of this world, it would be hard to understand. But
0: Well, but ultimately, a jury has to understand Yes. It. So, uh, so yes. literally, the kinds of people who are listening to this podcast, who number in the... Millions. Mil, at least <laughs> at, in, the, in the tens, they're going to have to understand, right? And so they're going to come into a jury, supposing he's testifying someday, and the defense lawyer is going to say, as you know, how can you believe the word of this man, George yep. Papadopoulos? The reason he is here... The only reason he's here is because he lied to the federal government. He didn't lie to anybody, in an ordinary person. He lied to the very agents, by the way, who are now telling you in this courtroom, and prosecutors who are telling you in this courtroom, mm-hmm. to believe him. That's, and that's nonsense.
1: Yeah, and that, and that would be the exact perfect argument for the defense lawyer to make in, in the closing of the trial. And what the prosecutor would, I think, say is, look— he lied and he shouldn't have lied. And there's no, you know, there there would be no excusing by the government for that kind of conduct. But there would be an understanding that people often do lie under these circumstances. You know, I've tried a lot of human trafficking cases. I've never had a human trafficking case where the victim was completely forthright when they first walked in the door. And that is really hard for a jury and for other people to understand, which is, you're the police, you're law enforcement. Why would you not, particularly you're told if you lie, you're going to be convi- potentially convicted of a crime. So, I think you have to under. I think you have to make sure that the jury understands that there are a lot of reasons why people are not forthright. They're scared. They don't know what they're sort of looking at, and then they become they come to tell you the truth. It's also really important to understand that at the point at which you go to trial, you have a lot of other evidence that will corroborate these statements. Yeah. So corroboration.
0: So, so right. So what we would always say in court is, uh, you know, if we have a witness who's testifying, who has pled guilty to a crime, like George Papadopoulos will have. So we, we're not asking to like the witness. Yep. We're asking you to decide whether or not you believe the witness. And because he's pled guilty to a crime, and in this case, it's a, it's a relevant crime, which is lying. You have to ask yourself, what are his incentives now? Now, his incentives when he was approached might be to protect the campaign or protect himself. And maybe he was fearful uh, and intimidated. But his incentives now are to get lenience. The only way that will happen is if the prosecutors and the court believe that he's telling the truth going forward. So he doesn't have an incentive to lie anymore, and that's a powerful argument to the jury. And then second, uh, the corroboration that you talked about. Do you think that the special counsel's office believes that he will be believed if and when he testifies.
1: I do. That decision of who you sign up as cooperators and who you don't is a really critical one. And there are times where, you know, you don't have a choice. Nobody will cooperate. Nobody but, comes forward, right? right? I mean, so sometimes it's not, it's not your decision, but there are times where you do, you know, get to make this assessment.
0: You said just because he was a proactive cooperator, George Papadopoulos didn't necessarily wear a wire, but he might have. Yes, I agree. So let's talk about that for a second. So I had people, you know, many, many, many times, you approach them, they flip, they wanna do anything to help themselves, they're cooperative, they found mm-hmm. Jesus. And then they wear a wire yep. and then they try to call people who yes. are above them. It yep. doesn't always pan out. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, sometimes you get a guy who wants to be helpful to the government and he calls up and he's so clunky about you no, know, they're not actors, some of them. And they're so clunky in saying, like, remember that guy you told me to kill? Well, you know, where's the money? <laughs> right. Yeah. And that and the and the higher yeah. up guy in the mob hangs up the phone and never speaks to him again. There's says, also
1: times where people at this point in the case, you know, the Mueller team has been interviewing so many people and they're they're deep into this. And so enough people have lawyered up and are going to be very hinky on talking to somebody and afraid of who's cooperating and who's wearing a wire, I think. That hinky,
0: hinky, by the way, being a, a, a specialized term a in special, the law. A term
1: of art, yeah.
0: I mean, what are the odds that George Papadopoulos, while well, everything's swirling around, wore a wire and then successfully got other people like Jeff Sessions or other folks who... He got on the phone with them and they incriminated themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... again, we're speculating, but I, I can't imagine that he got Sessions on the phone. Um, I think you know Sessions was one of the people in the meeting that tried to shut down or afterwards right. tried to sort of shut this down and I think would be particularly cautious on this at this point. But I do think people like Manafort, there's been a search warrant on his house. He wants to know what the government is doing. He's the former campaign chair and he's obviously a pretty center target of the ongoing investigation. And so could he get other people to talk to him? It's a, It's a really interesting question. And I think also, I mean, there's a lot in the charges that make it look like, from what we know, Clovis, who was one of the co-chairs of the campaign, has admitted that he's the senior, you know, he's one of the senior campaign officials who's mentioned. And so there are those folks. And then there are probably other folks. There are a group of people who were part of that team. and so. What's interesting to me is he could have worn a wire against the people to whom he reported. He could have also worn a wire against other members of the, of the campaign team, right? I mean, right. it is very possible. The likelihood that he did it and did it well. Seems low. I agree. Um, but it it's possible. So. Now,
0: the fact that we knew about a charge coming on Friday, you know, knew, the, the fact that we knew on Friday that there was a charge coming as soon as Monday, and people speculated Paul Manafort and some people speculated Michael Flynn, and that shoe may still drop. I agree. And then it was also George Papinopoulos, who, frankly, I'd never heard of. Had you ever heard of him before? No. Nope. Nope. What does that tell you about who might currently be in the crosshairs or already, you know, be in trouble or plead guilty that we don't know about?
1: Yeah. I mean, I expect that there will be people who are charged that we to come that we don't know about. And I think, you know, this always happens when there's public conversations about cases and we don't have the inside information of, of an investigation where we really do focus on the sort of top targets and we sort of focus on the people who are known to us, like, you know, the campaign chairman and, and others, but all these people who reported to those folks who are definitely in this chain and having these conversations with members of the Russian government or people who purport to speak on behalf of the Russian government. And I do think we're also seeing that the the Mueller team is interviewing everybody which is exactly what you would do in a corruption case like this because you need to know what do people know um they can obviously testify against your case um if you don't have a deep understanding of what happened where were people what were they doing and so i completely agree with you that there's more shoes to drop and that we probably won't know who many of them are
0: so what do you think is going to happen next and who are the other people who should be sitting around worried that Mueller's going to come knocking.
1: Yeah. So here are the people who I think would be worried. Um, and we should, we should sort of talk about and, again, speculate on a couple of them. You know, if we think about th- there are different people looking at different lines of inquiry in the case, then one really interesting line of inquiry, I think, is into this meeting with uh, Donald Trump Jr., with Paul Manafort, with Jared Kushner, and with this Russian lawyer.
0: You can say her. Let's, say, let's try saying her name.
1: I come from Ukraine, actually. I should be able to do this. <laughs> on my dad's side. Half, it sounds half Ukrainian. Almost,
0: I think it's Veselnitskaya.
1: Veselnitskaya. Veselnitskaya.
0: Henry's, Henry's nodding. It's Veselnitskaya.
1: So there, there's a meeting that has been acknowledged by Donald Trump Jr. And there's email communications about it. And they're seeking dirt on Hillary Clinton as part of that meeting. And so what's really interesting to me is if you and I were wearing our prosecutor hats and thinking about who would potentially tell us about what happened inside that meeting... I don't think it's the Russian lawyer. I don't think, obviously, you and I both know family usually does not cooperate. And so that takes Kushner and Trump Jr. out of the box. It leaves us with Paul Manafort. And so we understand at this point Manafort is not a cooperator, but it is a really interesting question to me. You know, there's now going to be enormous pressure on him. I agree with you that I think the charges are very strong. There's a paper trail of this money.
0: Are they the most serious charges you've ever seen?
1: Against Manafort?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's mostly, it's it's basically, no, but- it's basically lying about foreign accounts and lying about, you know, whether you were uh, an agent for a foreign power.
1: I think that's right. But I also happen to think that, you know, we live in a world where I would argue that, that Russia is an existential threat to the United States in many ways, that they are committed to destroying democracy. They are known to be committed to computer hacking and to really trying to figure out, can they undermine governments? And so, yes, in some ways, it looks like he was very greedy, right? There's $75 million in in money that was laundered and taxes not paid. But there's also this element of he's doing things on behalf of a foreign government without being honest about it, which we prohibit because we are concerned about foreign governments influencing, just like we're concerned about them influencing our elections, we're concerned about them lobbying here without, without knowing who are their lobbyists. And so there is a piece of this that I think is more than greed that I think really does. And again, you know, Mueller's charged with investigating these links to the Russian government. And Manafort is, you know, clearly working with a pro-Russian Ukrainian government. And so you and I, I suspect, are both not big believers in coincidence, yeah. um, <laughs> right? <And laughs> Although so, sometimes it happens. It does. I'm I'm not saying never, but... Uh, would you have hired,
0: you, you know, maybe you'll run for president in the future and I would vote for you. But if you were Donald Trump at the time, would you have hired Paul Manafort in the first place knowing... Some of his entanglements. Well, I've never
1: Russia. been asked if I was Donald Trump before.
0: Yeah, um, just just consider that for a moment.
1: No, no. I mean, I think the campaign is filled with people that you and I wouldn't have hired in our. Well, obviously not in a prosecutor's office, but we wouldn't have hired. in a, a, a lot of for capacities. a bakery
0: in a bakery shop?
1: I did work as an assistant pastry stodge when I was in law school. I know. That's um, why. I, that's why no, I ask you. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar back in the with day your at background. Um, I don't. That's right. Back where? Le Cirque.
0: All right, now you're Asteria del Terco. Now you're showing your yep. your, mm-hmm. your elitism.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, but don't ask me to bake anything. That was a, a long time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can bake Toll House cookies. Um, the n- no, I mean, it's easy for us to say this with hindsight, but he he is clearly a political operative, and that's been and a lobbyist, and that's been his calling card and his claim to fame, and and why he's made so much money.
0: Do you think he was approached and asked to cooperate? Before he was charged? I think... I think he probably was.
1: I agree. I agree. I think it's hard to say for certain, but again, because there's this other meeting, there's this other sort of piece that we do not have information on, but we know Manafort is the only, I think right now, the only person who's likely to give us information about it. I think you would take that shot and say... Mm -hmm look, you know, we have you dead to rights on tax fraud. We have you dead to rights on money laundering.
0: And that's the kind of thing you and I did all the time and our people did all the time and I did when I was a line prosecutor. You figure out what overwhelmingly convincing evidence, uh, compelling evidence you have against someone, even if you don't have everything else worked out yet. And you do what? You go to the lawyer and you say, as you, as you just described, your guy is dead to rights on X, Y, and Z. We can prove it without witnesses. We can prove it through documents. You didn't file these registration forms that you were supposed to file. So this would be a good time to come in. And my speculation is that's how word got out that he was told, that Paul Manafort was told to expect an indictment. That, that was part of the approach discussion.
1: Yeah, that would make sense. To get him to
0: flip. But I also don't think it's over. So- right. So why, so this maybe people don't understand who have not been through this process. Just because you've charged someone, that's not it, is it?
1: No. And and in fact I've had a lot of cooperators who've come on after they've been charged before trial in the middle of a case while the investigation is
0: pending. But why is that? If if so if the lawyer if the prosecutor comes to you and says, Your guy's dead to rights on this that and the other, and they go to the client and they say do you want to cooperate and admit your guilt, they say no. Is it because they think the prosecution is bluffing?
1: I think sometimes they may think the prosecution is bluffing or they may think that they have a better chance at beating the case than they actually do. And, you know, in the heat of the moment I think a lot of people to to plead guilty, you have to accept responsibility. You have to say under oath that you committed a crime. And I think a lot of people are not there. Um, and this is moving. I know the public, the people listening to us won't necessarily think so, but this is moving quickly. It's uh, pretty fast. I think it's very fast. Yeah. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you've got one day, you've got federal agents doing a search warrant of your house. Not long after, you've got somebody coming to you to say, plead guilty. You've committed crimes. Um I think the one X factor here that was not the case in any of the cases I ever did was that it is possible that Paul Manafort is looking for a presidential pardon or thinking that, yeah. that if he's convicted, he doesn't actually go to prison for the 181 months that he could get.
0: Right. So his, so his calculus I don't know. is different from the average. Like most people who we prosecuted weren't sitting around like, you know, I, think, I think I think Obama's got my back on right. this, so I don't have to worry so much. Yeah. Is that crazy to you?
1: I mean, it, it is it is so hard for me to think about it, and it is crazy to me, because I think to be a prosecutor means that you very much believe in the rule of law, um, and that you follow the facts where they take you, and when you believe there's a violation of the law, you charge, and that there's then um, decisions that are made by courts and judges and prosecutors about what accountability looks like and what those sentences might be if you're convicted of the crime. And so the idea that, you know, we saw this with Trump pardoning the sheriff, Joe Arpaio, we... we already seen him. Literally, Arpeo was standing in front of a court of law, was told he would be held in contempt if he did not change his position, refused to change his position, was actually convicted of, of after being warned and then was pardoned. And, you know, I think a lot about the rule of law and how important it is for us to be governed by that and not by whim, by fancy, by anger, by politics, by any of that. And then, so the whole idea to me that Someone like Paul Manafort could be sitting back and saying, "Well, I think Trump will have my back. it's deeply troubling, and I don't know it's just in my head that it's one of the factors that I would be thinking about well, I don't but, know what
0: you So I agree with all of that, and I think this uh, you know this cloud of potential pardon or the sunshine of a potential the rainbow of a potential pardon, whatever idiotic metaphor I can come up with for, to have that looming, I think is problematic. But how do you think Paul Manafort assesses the likelihood of being pardoned. Uh, does Donald Trump call up Paul Manafort and say, listen, buddy, I got you.
1: Or send words through somebody
0: else. Send that, and do you think, yeah. do you think, is there, is there a universe in which you think that in an in advance sort of promise, I'm not saying this happened at all, but if it did, is that obstruction?
1: It certainly feels like it, right? It certainly feels like a misuse of the rule of law and, and of the ability to pardon. I have to think a little more about it, but it, 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 it strikes me that if Trump sent information or sent word to Manafort that, hey, don't worry about it, I got you. Um,
0: what if I change it? Yeah. What if I say— I feel like I'm in a law school class. What, what <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Professor Preet. This
0: is really fun for me. You're a very good student. Um, what if Trump sent word that, listen, I don't want you to reveal— you know, mm-hmm, use, exactly, use, a, use a, yep. maybe, maybe a crazy hypothetical. And I'm not saying this is at all true, but just to explore You know, what is happening around here so people get a sense of the issues— Listen, I don't want you to blab about all that stuff, all that way, all those, way- I don't want you to blab about all the ways I colluded with Russia. Mm-hmm. And so if it makes you feel better, I'm going to pardon you. Yep. So keep your mouth shut. Yep. And it was, it was basically a deal where he said, in order to stop you from giving from, information to the government okay. yep. that might incriminate me and other people, I'm going to pardon you. Does that get closer to obstruction?
1: Yes, I think that's a really interesting question, too, because I would assume that part of Mueller's investigation will center around Trump firing Comey. Uh, These questions of what were they doing to try to stop the investigation and what would they do? And so it certainly becomes more interesting if there's this exact quid, which is, look— you could give information that's potentially very harmful to me in a prosecution of me or others around me, Um, that feels a lot more directed towards trying to prevent, you know, the fair administration of justice. Now, again, it's a little more complicated because Manafort is not obligated to say anything. He's been charged with a crime. He has a Fifth Amendment right to not say anything. He's absolutely well within his rights not to do anything, but... What do you think?
0: Generally speaking, when deals like that are made, they're not explicit. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to prove what's in people's minds. Um, How do you think Donald Trump's lawyers are doing in dealing with all this? How hard a client do you think they have? By client, I mean Donald Trump. Oh, very difficult. Donald Trump. Very difficult, yeah. What makes him so difficult? Is it the the tweeting?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The tweeting is is Exhibit A, I think, for why he's a very tough client. Um, You know, Exhibit B is... Look, you've, you've got him—I mean, think about this. You've got him publicly on video telling the Russians, asking the Russians to release Clinton's emails. You've got him publicly saying that he fired Comey because of the Russia investigation. And so he is his own worst enemy, and it is very difficult to defend someone who's not taking advice or counsel.
0: But I want to just unpack that for a second. So, uh, you know, I've said many times, you know, not you shouldn't only watch what Bob Mueller does in connection with these charges and how they proceed and unfold— but also what Donald Trump does. Yes, very much so.
1: You know, this is an ongoing conversation and at some point it will become relevant. You know, there are pictures of Donald Trump in the room with George Papadopoulos. It will be com- There will be real questions about what was said then. And if Trump is tweeting about what happened or what was said or in any way has a conversation that is related to this, much like his public statements about firing Comey, that is all part of the investigation of the record. And so I'm not saying he said anything on Twitter that I think opens him to more exposure since the indictment came down on Monday, or but, since but, the charges but, came down. But,
0: but he could. But he could people understand now from this conversation from the charges against George Papadopoulos if you lie to an FBI agent during an interview that's a crime yes but if you just lie in a tweet it's not a crime right. even, if you're, <laughs> even if your president will you know which is good for probably a lot yep. of people what people maybe don't always get is that doesn't mean that you can tweet with impunity because even though a lie in a tweet may not by itself uh, subject you to arrest and charge lying in tweets about things that are the subject matter of a, of another case is evidence that you were trying to cover something up. So, for example, I think this is what you were suggesting. If Donald Trump starts tweeting saying he had no idea about X, Y, and Z, and he tries to cast aspersions on people saying those things, and then it turns out that's wrong, then a prosecutor gets up in court and says, why was Donald Trump lying about this? Why was he saying these things? And he was saying these things because he didn't want us to find out X, Y, and Z. And then it becomes relevant to his state of mind. And I actually think... That, that his twitter feed the things he says in tweets are the most relevant to understanding what's in this what's in the mind of Donald Trump because everything else that comes out of an ordinary white house is written it's very by it's processed it's yes, processed yes, by 75 yep, different people Ten and 10 people approved it yes and it's very easy to but say he directly the tweet well,
1: is, the directly, tweet is, is personal agree.
0: complete with there's mis- no intermediary complete with misspellings yep. and kofifi and whatever else yep. so to the extent he's saying things that are false if he ends up doing that about matters in the jurisdiction and focus of Bob Mueller's team, that could come back to bite him hard.
1: And we should talk about the obstruction piece here because... Please. ...100% I agree with you, but also I think you and I have both seen this a thousand times that it's often the cover-up, not the crime, that gets people because yes. people really do not come forward. They're not forthright. And then there's evidence that proves that, you know, for example, here with George Papadopoulos, that they've lied. And so I think we should all be on the lookout for the cover-up could potentially be a lot of what we see coming out of future charges.
0: How confident are you that we will see more charges?
1: I believe we will. I mean, I I think you mentioned Flynn before. I think by any account, um, we would see that there are potential charges against Flynn, both for lying on his security application and for failing to register as a foreign agent, just like um, Paul Manafort has been charged with here. And so it's clear to me and that's probably the tip of the iceberg that's potentially out there so I do think we will see additional charges I agree completely that you cooperate somebody like Papadopoulos because they will give you information about other people right right? you don't cooperate somebody against themselves you cooperate them to get additional information, to have a narrator who's actually inside the room, who's on the emails, who's part of these conversations about these arrangements of meetings, of conversations about getting dirt on the Clinton campaign. And so it is very clear that he will be used to further the investigation against other people.
0: Is there any universe in which you think, ultimately, Donald Trump himself does not get interviewed by the special counsel's office?
1: I was thinking as we were just talking now about this conversation about the FBI shows up and tells you not to lie. I think he does get interviewed. I think he does get interviewed. And I... I, I mean,
0: if this were your investigation... It, it's a
1: its a hard call, right? Uh, and I think...
0: Why, why is it a hard call? Well... He's, he's a subject of the investigation. He claims he wants to cooperate. He said in a tweet once that I'll, I'll testify when he was being accused of things by Jim Comey. In, you know, why not?
1: Well, it's still, I mean, it, he, he is still the sitting president of the United States. And so it's an extraordinary step. I can't think of... Would you
0: ask? You would certainly ask.
1: A hundred percent. And okay. I think I would insist, right? So I think if, if we're really sitting here thinking about what Mueller does, I don't think, it, it feels to me like you need to talk to Trump before you close a case, right? But, right? So that's, or before you make a decision about a
0: lot of the pieces. So the timing of when you speak to Trump is when?
1: I suspect the end. You know, it's again, it's hard because we're speculating on a lot of different pieces. You could also interview him more than once. And you make a good point saying that, you know, he has said that he would be glad to be be delighted to be interviewed. And so maybe that is the conversation with his lawyer, which is like, look, we want to talk to your guy. We may come back and talk to him again. Right. But then I think you is... need to have enough information, though, before you go to him, because I suspect that there are parts of this case that the special prosecutor and the team un- understand now or have a pretty good sense of based on cooperators, based on on emails, based on any other evidence that sort of corroborates all this. I suspect that there's still also a lot that they don't know, that they're still trying to figure out and also what Trump's involvement was. So you would certainly want to have as good a sense of his involvement as you could when you went in. That being said, if you were at a point where you felt like, we don't know, we just have a lot of questions for him, I think you do go in and you ask for that interview. Yeah,
0: let's say, Investigators from the special counsel's office go and interview Donald Trump, and he agrees to be interviewed voluntarily. And then, while being interviewed, tells lies about his interactions with the Russian government or some other things that are demonstrably, provably false, to the same degree uh, and the same severity and seriousness that George Papadopoulos lied mm-hmm. to investigators. If it's you, after that, do you? Because there's no one for Donald Trump to flip against. I yep. don't think. Yep. Do you? recommend making a referral to the House of Representatives for the impeachment of the President?
1: That's a good question. I mean I think the tricky piece is that there are a lot of um, there are a lot of ifs in there that we're sort of building on to get to that point. Um,
0: that's why it's called a hypothetical. Right, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do feel like I'm in law school. <laughs> um, I think the answer is yes. Um, but being clear
0: the answer is yes that you that the president lies in the same way that George Papadopoulos did. That you would potentially make
1: that referral to the house, yes, for impeachment. Yeah, I mean, I think look, there's a lot of debate, and I'm I'm not the foremost expert on this of whether or not the president can be charged with a crime. I think the general consensus right now is that the proper mode of dealing with criminality by someone sitting in that office is to refer it to the House of Representatives. And so I think the first question is, you know, do you have a thousand and one? Do you have a a crime that's been committed because the president has not been forthright when you interview him? And then if that's the case, how does that get handled? Is it, you know, is an indictment? Obviously, it's not going to be a guilty plea. Um, You know, and I think right now from from the experts I've read, the right measure is going to the House of Representatives.
0: There's been a lot of talk about whether or not Donald Trump is setting the stage to have Bob Mueller fired. Yep. What do you think about that?
1: I think, you know, I mean, here's what's hard to know. There, That is definitely the narrative that's coming out. I find it very hard to believe that that will happen. And, you know, I hope not to be proven wrong. Um, we both know that it's sort of impossible to predict what will happen with this administration. But... Mueller was appointed by the deputy attorney general. He's been given this authorization, um, which allows him to investigate everything that he's currently investigating. And so, do I think the president could fire him or cut a, or cut his budget or something like that? Obviously, yes. I mean, he's the president of the United States, and there are a lot of different levers he could have. But do I think it would be legitimately done? The answer's no.
0: If he were to cause Mueller to be fired or defund him completely, as far as how big a crisis that is for the rule of law in the country, where would you say it lands?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, an unbelievable crisis for the rule of law because this is not an investigation into into just money laundering or tax fraud, right? This really, at its heart, is an, is is a question of did a foreign government attempt to influence and influence one of our democratic elections. And I think we can't forget what an important question that is. And Because, look, we can fight about elections, we can fight about politics, but at the end of the day, those are our fights to have. And the law really prohibits a foreign government from coming in and influencing those those elections. And so it's so core to our democracy and who we are that I think it's important to remember that. So couple that mandate to Mueller with the fact that he's now brought charges against people that we have an opportunity to say, have actually committed crimes. And so I think that that certainly, in my view, it gets harder and harder to follow this fire of the special prosecutor as he continues to make cases that look to me to be very strong cases against people who were involved at high levels of the campaign. And so do I think it's possible? I think anything is, you know, none of us should be betting. Um,
0: Based on what you saw this week, are you more or less convinced that there was collusion between the campaign and the Russian government?
1: So one of the things I think is really interesting, we haven't narrowed in on this, but on the statement of the crime for George Papadopoulos, there are hints of what was said and done that it makes clear that the special prosecutor's office knows a lot more about those conversations about what, quote, dirt they had on Hillary Clinton when that happened, what they asked for, um, what the conversations were about, whether it was, you know, we don't know yet. You know, were the conversations about, can you please release information? Were they just about, oh, hey, we have this information? We really don't know. But I would say that there's enough in the charges, the statement of crimes, to sort of make us think that there's a lot more to the story than we have. So you know, if I were to step back, I would say we do know a lot of things. We know that the emails were hacked. We know that the emails were publicly released. We know that there were a lot of conversations between a political campaign and a foreign government. We know that some of those conversations related to information that would influence an election. And so I think, again, I'm not a big believer in coincidence. I think there is a lot here that needs to be explored to understand were did the Russians, in fact, conspire with members of the campaign to influence our election. And I certainly think this week brings us, with Papadopoulos, a step closer to that.
0: Let me ask you a different 1 to 10 question. Mm-hmm. Um, I love 1 to 10.
1: I know. I like 1 to 10.
0: Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, yeah. how much of an earthquake was this week's news?
1: You know, that's a good question. you got to give a number, too. Okay. I'm going to say 7. I'm going to say 7. And I think... If this were any other administration, I would say 10. But I do feel like there have been so many bombshells. It's almost, and again, this is why I said at the beginning, we have to remind ourselves of how extraordinary it is that we're even having a conversation about a foreign government influencing a democratic election for president of the United States. So I feel like when I remind myself of that, it feels like a 10. Um, but in the context of Comey being fired, in the context of Donald Trump Jr.'s admissions about walking into that meeting, understanding that there would be dirt or looking for dirt and saying he would love it, right? I mean, in, in the context of all these other pieces, I think I'm going to go seven.
0: I'm sort of with seven uh, along the lines of of what you said, because Donald Trump, you know, effectively foreshadowed this by saying during the campaign, I could shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue and my voters would still be with me. And now you have actually, I don't believe he shot a guy uh, that I'm aware of, but there's all this swirl of criminal activity on the part of people who are very close to him and one guy has pled guilty and maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, do you think any of this matters ultimately? to how the nation turns out or what happens to the administration or the presidency? Yeah, or I mean, is it a bunch of lawyers talking about stuff like us on a podcast yeah. the you know, does it matter?
1: So you're right about what I think Donald Trump has done is gone around the traditional norms of how people get elected, of how people communicate with the public, and he's created his own path through Twitter and through other things that he's right. His base is, I think, politically 100% with him. We live in very complicated and difficult times and on just a lot of levels. And so... I think that all of us are Americans that we put our country first and that to think about a foreign power influencing our elections and there's no question that there is something really fundamentally problematic and I don't think it's about democrat or republican I think ultimately we're Americans and we should vote who are, for who our leaders are, no matter what people choose, no matter what party they're, without having foreign governments putting their hand on the scale. And that, to me, is fundamental and should be fundamental to all of us.
0: Anne Milgram, thanks so much for being on the show, especially on short notice. Given thanks everything for having that's me. going on. Thank you. So now I want to end the show the way I always do, talking about something from the news that was undercovered and that struck me personally. And this week, it's about a man named Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is that he actually goes around the country collecting the white robes and hoods of Klansmen, people from the KKK. It's a pretty odd collection. But what makes that interesting in part is that Daryl is not a Klansman, he's not a white supremacist, he's not a neo-Nazi. Daryl Davis is a 59-year-old African-American blues musician. Here's a little clip of his music. So basically, in addition to making great music, what Daryl Davis has done for the better part of the last few decades is to go around the country, meet folks who are racist, Klansmen, and convince them of the error of their ways and convert them basically to humanity. Daryl Davis is not a naive man. He understands that you can't convert everyone, but his success rate is not bad. And what he has learned is you have to talk to people. He said something that really struck me. He said, when two enemies are talking, they are not fighting. He also says ignorance breeds fear and possibly violence. Daryl's gotten untold numbers of people to leave the clan, to become his friend, even attend his wedding. You know the last few months have been difficult in a lot of ways for a lot of people in the country. And one way it's been difficult is that there just seems to be a lot of people who think that the way to success for them is to say, divide, 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 hate, hate, hate. And there's this guy, Daryl Davis, who over the course of time, fairly quietly, has a different message. And that is, unite and love, love, love. And if over time more people thought the way Daryl Davis did, if more people had the courage that he has... I think we'd be in a better place. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ann Milgram. And thank you for listening. If you've written a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't, now's a great time to do so. It really helps other people find the show. Keep sending me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Ferrara Or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669 669- 247 Two, four, Stay tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Thanks again to Ricky Nowetsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. We have new episodes coming to you every Thursday. I'm Preet Ferrara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.